Wow, four days before Christmas? 20th, five days. Hard to believe. Amen? Well, you know what? The Word of God, we're going to talk a little bit about Christmas tonight. It actually kind of comes up in Titus. So, uh, you know, the Word of God is living and it's powerful and it's sharper than a two edged sword. It can do what nothing else can do divide asunder between your soul and your spirit and the joints of the marrow and discern and reveal and expose the true thoughts and intents of our heart. So the word of God is a searching word. It's a meddling word, isn't it? It meddles with our stuff, doesn't it? Well, it's going to meddle tonight. It is going to meddle, but I I want you to know, it meddled with me before it's going to meddle with you because I studied it. Uh, But it's good stuff. So let's, let's pray. We're going to talk about grace, grace, and more grace. Father, we just thank you tonight for the word of God. And we pray that you will speak to our hearts and feed us the good word. This is our manna, Lord. This is the bread from heaven, the word of God. And the word of God quickens our faith, builds our faith, and strengthens our character. And I pray that it will do that tonight, Lord. And I thank you for a Holy Spirit hush over this place. I thank you, Lord, that all flesh is bound and the Spirit is released. In Jesus' name, amen. Tell your neighbor, it's going to be good tonight. Amen. Praise God. Now, um, we have just a couple of weeks left in this. This is part four. We have two more after this, and then we're done. It's a simple little book, three chapters, loaded with truth. Now, last time we explored the instructions given by Paul in the first half of Titus chapter 2 for three groups of people, older men, and I said last week, he didn't say old men and old women, he just said older. Older men, older women, and young men. And we also looked at how to deal with critics by living an exemplary, godly life. You know, sometimes you can shut a critic's mouth just by living right. Because when they try to criticize you, there's nothing to criticize because you're living right. It's hypocrisy that critics often jump on. So tonight I want to begin with verses 9 and 10. And he's going to talk first, real practical, about employer-employee relationships. Can you believe that God meddles with that too? But he does. And uh, then we're going to get into some great theology after that. But look at 9 and 10. Exhort bondservants, everybody say employees, to be obedient to their own masters, everybody say bosses, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Wow. Now, how many in here work for somebody? How many of you wish you did? <laughs> um, but most everybody here works for somebody. Even bosses work for somebody. Everybody answers to somebody. Everybody is on, under authority somewhere along the way. Now, in Paul's time, when he talked about bond servants, he was talking about slaves. Because the Greek word here is doulos. And doulos means a slave. Um, but since we're not dealing with slavery in our time... We should look at this from the employer-employee perspective. Now, remember, the Word of God is inspired. Every, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, instruction in righteousness, and so on and so forth. So, um, what we're getting into right now, what God has to say about the employer-employee relationship, came to Paul and went through Paul to Titus, By the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit instructed Paul to write to Titus. So this is inspired. This is not the wishes or teachings of a man. This is inspired. So let's look at what he tells employees about their jobs. He says to the employee, first of all, be obedient. Now he used the same word in verse 5 for a wife to her husband. It's a little bit different here, though, so I don't want your, your uh, ladies to bristle when I say that. It's the same word, 
But when I say the next sentence, God expects employees to do what they were told, I'm not saying that every wife is, needs a jump when their husband tells them to do something. It's not a husband lording it over the wife. So I don't want you to misinterpret that. But it's the same word used, obedient. God expects employees to do what they're told. Whether their boss is good or bad, nice or mean, unless it's immoral or illegal. Now, if it's immoral or illegal, you have every right in the world to stand up and say, you know what, I respect you, but I cannot do that. I cannot go there. I will not do anything illegal. I will not do anything immoral. And that goes all the way up to the government. When the government instructs us, if they should, to do something illegal or immoral, like, for instance, if the police were to walk in here tonight and say to me, Pastor Wickwire, you can no longer preach in the name of Christ. The Fort Worth City Council had a meeting, and thus they have decreed. I would have to say, I respect the city council, but I will not respect that order, nor will I obey. Okay? Because there's a higher authority that I answer to. But in just everyday, run-of-the-mill, employer-employee relationship, when the employer says, do this, do that, we've been hired to do that. We've been hired to do that. It always helps to remember here, in, in all submission issues, not just employer-employee, but husband-wife, um, you name it, pastor, congregation, um, in all places where authority is exercised, it, it's important to remember that Paul exhorts Christians in Colossians. He says, whatever you do, do it heartily. Now look at this, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve, who do you serve? Say it with me, the Lord Christ. Now catch those last six words because I want you to extrapolate those six words. I want you to, to put them into every area where you must submit to some kind of authority. And I want you to realize in submitting to an authority figure, you're ultimately serving Christ. For you serve the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, when your boss says do this, do that, when you do it, whatever you do, do it heartily with a great attitude because it is as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that from the Lord you're going to receive a reward of the inheritance because it's Christ you're serving ultimately, not that man or woman. Amen. Do you see that? Amen. This is so important because I want us to understand tonight that this is how God has redeemed work from the curse of the garden. It says in Genesis 3, let me read what happened when man fell and how it affected work. The curse of the garden. Genesis 3:17. And to the man God said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I command you not to eat, the ground is what, everybody? Cursed. Now, the ground represented their work. The, the ground is cursed because of you. Now, look what happens to their work. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. Do you ever feel that way? I'm struggling just to scratch out a living. Isn't that uh, illustrative? It is. Because that really describes it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. Verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. Amen. Now that's the curse of the garden. Our labor. Before, before Adam and Eve fell, I don't believe there was sweat. I don't believe that there was toil in work. You know, the first thing that God gave Adam to do was work. But it was Emmanuel labor. It was toil-free labor. It was non-cursed labor. God gave him a job. I want you to keep the garden. And so he gave him a job. But it was not a cursed job. It was not cursed labor. There was no scratching out a living factor involved. But then man fell. And one of the things that happened in the fall is our labor, our work was cursed. That's the, the curse of the garden. But now listen, when we view our jobs as ultimately serving Jesus and not a man, not a woman, then our work is redemptive, transformed, 
by the work of the cross where Jesus became a curse for us. Do you see that? Because when Jesus removed the curse, and he did, and I'm going to read it to you in a moment, that included the curse of the garden where work was cursed through the fall. So Jesus, in removing the curse of the garden, redeemed work for us. Look what happened when Jesus died for us. Galatians 3.13. Christ purchased our freedom and redeemed us from the curse of the law. Can I read that again? Christ purchased our freedom and redeemed us from the curse of the law, which included the curse of the garden and its condemnation. How do you do it? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. So when Jesus hung on that cross, body pointing upward, hands outward, and he died on that cross, he redeemed us from the curse of the law, and with that, the curse of the garden, so that now our work is redemptive. Because every time I go off to work, I'm not just going to work for an employer, but I'm going to work for Christ and the authority he has invested in the employer. So I'm doing it as under the Lord. And when you look at all submission that way, then it's so much easier to submit because you say, I'm not doing this for him or her, but I'm doing this for the Lord. Let all that you do be done as unto the Lord. So everybody say with me, my work has been redeemed. So I'm no longer scratching out a living. No, you're serving the king. Amen. You're serving the king. So I say this. Work is redemptive through serving Jesus in it. And there is a nobility to any and every job. I don't care what you're doing. You're flipping hamburgers at McDonald's. You're earning a check to put food on the table, and that is noble. That's noble. What's not noble is not working when you could, not working when you should, and living off of others instead of earning your own way. That's what's not noble. Amen? Have you ever been out to eat with somebody? And you know that they've got money. I mean, this has happened to me. I, I've been invited out to eat with people that, that had money. A, a friend of mine, as a matter of fact. I know he had a lot of money. And every time he invited me out to eat, he would get up when we were done and shove the check over to me and say, appreciate it, Pastor Jeff. And leave me to pay it. And drive away in his high-dollar BMW. And I used to wonder, what's up with this? But you know what? A lot of people do that in a lot of different ways. We let other people pick up the tab. Amen. And that's what's not honorable. You know, like um, giving in a church. Um, you know, Kathy and I always tied. We always gave. I'm going to tell you, there were times, and this is the honest truth, when a tithe was $10, because that's all that I had earned that week, because I was in sales in 100% commission, which is really a trial of your faith. And there were weeks that were okay, and there were weeks that weren't okay at all. But no matter what I made or didn't make, we still gave off of it. Because I didn't, because I believe, number one, in the church. And Jesus said, where your heart is, that's where I'm going to find your treasure. If your heart, if you believe in God's work in a ministry, then your heart will be there. If your heart is there, your treasure will follow. I dare you to love somebody and not give to them. Now, we can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. You can't do it. If you love, you will give. I, I dare you. Fall in love with somebody and try to not give something to them. I love my little dog. My little dog can look at me in a way that melts me every time. He knows I'm an easy hit. All he's got to do is look at me. And, and, and I look at him, and I might be eating something. I feel guilty with every bite. He's right here, and he's looking up at me. And, and his tail's wagging, and he's, he's a cutie, and he looks right at me. And, and it's as if to say, that sure looks good. I can tell you're really enjoying that. I would love just a little bit. And you know what? Because I love him. And I know, don't come at me afterwards and say, you ought not give your dog scraps. I, I want to give my dog scraps. He's not fat. He's not overweight. If he got real overweight, I'd stop. But he's okay. But because I love him, I can't resist giving to him. And it, so it works its way down all the way to an animal. But if you love a human being, 
you're going to give. If you love a ministry, you're going to give. If you love a Savior, it's easy to give. Amen? So the only kind of living that's not noble is when you're letting other people pick up the tab. When you could do it yourself. Now when you can't, that's fully understood. And I'll be the first one to help you when you can't. Amen? Now, Paul goes on to say that every Christian employee should seek to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. Now, he's really meddling. Because if the Christian employee is seeking to please the Lord in his or her work, then it will be a job well done because you're doing it for the Lord. And you're not going to do anything roughshod or, or halfway for the Lord. You're going to do your best if it's for the Lord. And you're going to have a good attitude with it. Let him be well-pleasing in all things. And then not answering back. Interesting. Out of the Greek language, it means not speaking against or contradicting. So it implies resistance or kicking against. Kicking against that employer. We all know about water cooler talk. Amen. You get around the water cooler. And in hushed tones, you talk about the employer and the job and all the things that are wrong, complain and grumble. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, not answering back. Not speaking against or contradicting. That may mean not sitting with certain people at lunch. Because you know what it'll do? If you sit around and you complain constantly about your employer, and I've been there, believe me, I'm not pointing fingers. There's nothing I'm teaching tonight that I haven't been convicted about in my own life. Because I've had some terrible jobs. I mean, terrible jobs. I just, I would wake up and go, oh no, I've got to go there again. I had a job one time. They hired me because I had a college degree and I could never figure it out because I didn't know what I was doing. I just had a college degree. But I had to carpool with a woman who smoked. And it was wintertime, freezing cold out. And boy, the sister would roll up the windows and fire up that cigarette. And by the time, listen, I had the window open just a little crack with my nose sticking out. And, and I was in torture all the way to this job and all the way back because I couldn't breathe. And by the time I got to the job, I smelled like an ashtray. I hated it. And then I get to the job and didn't know what I was doing. And I come home every day with a migraine headache. It was a terrible job. But I did my very, very best at it because of what the Bible tells me to do. Amen. See, the Bible can tell me what to do. Yes. The Bible can tell you what to do because it's the Word of God. Amen. Okay? The Bible is the authoritative Word of God. So for any genuine believer, the Bible can tell you what to do because it's the Word of God. So it should be your guide and, and director and counselor and advisor at all times in all things. Now, so don't complain and grumble because what it will eventually do is it'll complain and grumble you right out of the job because you're setting into motion spiritual principles that complaining and grumbling eventually releases things. I personally believe in the spirit arena, you're, you're sabotaging the job while you speak. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it, love good speech, will eat the fruit of good speech. You can sabotage your job. Now, he goes on and says, and not pilfering. Not pilfering. Pilfering comes from a word mean, meaning being light-fingered. Now, this word was used of Ananias and Sapphira, who told the apostles they were donating, remember the story, the entire proceeds of a land sale to the church, when in fact they kept back or pilfered part of the money. In pilfering it, they robbed God. Now, let me talk to you about pilfering a little bit because it's very, very common out there. I told you the word was going to meddle tonight. So here we go. Pilfering can be major. It can be minor. Everything from taking money from your employer to walking away with stamps or pens, envelopes, computer software, lifting a little thing here, lifting a little thing there. It's being light-fingered. Everybody do this with me. Light-fingered. Ah, they're not going to miss that pen. 
They're not going to miss that software. They're not going to miss that old computer. They're not going to miss this. They're not going to miss that. That eraser. That whiteout. They're not going to miss that. Light-fingered. Now, here's the deal. Let me tell you how God sees it. As far as God is concerned, theft is theft. Now, let me tell you what Jesus said. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Do you catch what he's saying? He's saying, if you'll steal a dime, you'll steal a diamond. Because theft is a habit that grows with time. Show me somebody that stole 10000 I'll show you somebody that stole something much smaller earlier on. Amen. Because when you steal, well, I, I can just, I know this is convicting. But let me just get real with you. Because, I, I, listen, I want the best for everyone here, including me. Amen. I want the peace of God resting on you in a maximum level. And sometimes we can get so corrupted by the world's way of thinking because the world's filled with thieves starting in D.C., And they steal millions without blinking. But now, if you steal a dime, you will steal a diamond. It's a habit. It starts small, it grows over time, as your conscience grows duller. That's the thing. See, you want a sharp conscience. You want a conscience that can detect the slightest impulse from the Holy Spirit. You want a conscience that is gentle, sensitive, easily pricked by the Holy Spirit. Amen. You want a conscience that picks up on the slightest nudge from the Spirit of God. But see, that conscience can never be your total guide because your conscience can be either sharpened by the Word of God or dulled by compromise. Yes. And as it gets dulled by compromise, you don't hear it like you used to. You don't feel it like you used to. You know, we look at news stories and we go, how in the world could they have done that? That never mystifies me. Because of the word of God, I understand human nature. I understand human nature through the lens of the word of God. And the word of God has all kinds of things to say about the conscience and how it's dulled. It talks about a seared conscience. That when you lie, you sear it. You know, you get a... We've all burned our finger on the stove at one time or another, and that skin is all of a sudden dead. You don't feel it because it got burned. So you, you're, you can stick it and you don't feel it because the nerves were burned. Your conscience is the same way. So when we ha- are light-fingered and we say, I- I'll just, they won't miss this, they won't miss that, what you're doing is you're dulling your conscience. Amen. So that down the road, you know, you go into... Uh, a restaurant, and, and when you're checking out, somebody somehow left a $100 bill sitting on the counter, and there's nobody around, and you see it, and you go light-fingered. Well, if they're dumb enough to leave it, I'm smart enough to take it. And you lift it. But when you do that, it's indicative that your conscience has been getting dulled. Because it was a pencil. Now it's a $100 bill, and later, who knows? See, God cares that we keep our conscience sharp. That's why I won't drink anything. I I don't mean to harp on that, but that's, I don't want anything that dulls me. And and not anything, because we're going to see later in this, in this, uh, Titus, in this chapter, he talks about being sober. And that, that means alert. That means vigilant. That means aware. That means watchful. Well, you're not going to be that way if you're in a stupor. In the same way, I want my conscience to pick up on the slightest nudge. It'll spare you many tears. So don't be light-fingered. Amen? Then verse 10 continues, showing all good fidelity. Fidelity is faithfulness and loyalty. A faithful worker will look out for the best interests of his employers and make the best use of his time and talents, period. A good employee, it's all about who they're working for, not them. 
Okay? Then Paul gives the highest reason for doing a good job. Watch the powerful stuff. He says, here's why. That they, the Christian employee, may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Now, adorn means to ornament. Our English word cosmetic comes from the Greek word adorn. We translate into adorn. Uh, cosmetic. Women adorn their faces with added beauty. I was in Nordstrom's recently, and Nordstrom's is carrying men's makeup now. Yeah. And they want me to sit down and try some on. And I said, I'm busy. That's free. I'm just throwing it out there. We ornament Christmas trees, don't we? Adorning their natural beauty with greater beauty. Now, he says, he, Paul says, this is what you as an employee are to do with the doctrine of God. You're to adorn it, ornament it with a beauty that appeals to people who you've been t talking to about the grace of God and the salvation that came through Jesus Christ. Amen. You are to adorn it. You're to adorn it. So you adorn your message. You can either give your message wheels in your workplace or, or you can really put the brakes on with your testimony by not being a good employee. So we, we ornament our testimony of God's grace. When you serve honorably, everybody sees it. And it adorns your message. Because, listen, when you go in there and everybody knows you're a Christian, you're being watched, dude. They're watching you. They may never say a word, but they're watching you. Okay, they said they're a Christian. Let's see how they work. Let's see what they talk about. Let's see how they handle themselves, carry themselves. Let's see. They're watching. And so you have to always, I have a little saying I, I, I say to myself a lot. Um, you are always being watched. There's eyes all around. Now, I'm not meaning to sound paranoid, but it's true. Amen. Right when you think nobody's watching, somebody's watching you. Amen. I went in the other day to get a hamburger in this place. I just went in in blue jeans. This was a place that I'd never been in before, as a matter of fact. I walked in. I ordered a hamburger. I'm just kind of looking around. It's real busy. I'm minding my own. Somebody taps me on the shoulder and says, excuse me, are you on the radio? And I said, yes, I am. Flip my cigarette real quick. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I just want to be sure if you're listening. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And they said, I heard you order that hamburger, and I knew that had to be you because I recognize your voice. Everybody say, somebody's always watching. I was so glad I was nice to the clerk. Smiled, polite. You, you ornament the doctrine of God. You decorate your testimony by how you behave. So in verse 11, Paul tells us just what the doctrine of God is. What doctrine are we to ornament? Are we to adorn? He says in verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So the doctrine of God, folks, is about the grace of God. What is our testimony? I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. So what is our testimony? What is the doctrine of Jesus Christ? It is we have been saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. Yeah. So the doctrine of God is about the grace of God. Grace simply means favor that I didn't deserve, favor that I didn't earn, unearned favor, undeserved favor. It's something we got that we didn't deserve. We got the grace of God when we did not deserve it. Now, Paul is going to list several aspects of God's grace, and we need to hear these. It's powerful. He says, first, God's grace is saving grace. Can you say that with me? Saving grace. God's grace is a saving grace. His grace, the first act of grace in your life and mine, is to save us from what we do deserve. Punishment for our sins. Rather than give us the justice we deserve, he gives us grace we don't deserve. It's amazing grace. That's why it's amazing. That's why it's called amazing grace. 
Because we, we did not get what we deserve. And Jesus got what he did not deserve. Because he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he got what he didn't deserve. We got by taking our sins on him, but we got what we didn't deserve by receiving the grace of God that kept us from punishment. It says, not only is it saving grace, but it's also sufficient grace. Paul says that God's saving grace is sufficient for the whole world. His grace, look what he says, has appeared to how many men, everybody? All men. All men. Every boy. Every girl. Every woman. Every man on our planet is included in its reach. That's why I can't be a hardcore Calvinist. Because Calvinism says some are chosen to be saved and some are not. I can't. I just can't. That gets stuck right here in my theological throat. Because he says his grace has appeared to all men. His sufficient grace, and this is important, though it is sufficient for the whole world. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But his sufficient grace only becomes efficient when we place our personal trust and faith in Jesus Christ. The cross doesn't do you any good unless you go to the cross and repent of your sin. Unlike those who teach universalism, and if you don't know about universalism, you need to because it's everywhere in the United States of America. Some major preachers in the last decade or so have swallowed the false doctrine of universalism. Universalism says that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the whole world, and the whole world is automatically, by default, saved because Christ died on the cross for the whole world. But we know that that's only part of it, and that's a false message. Because you must repent in order for God's sufficient grace to become personally efficient for you. If you don't repent, you're not saved. The first message out of the mouth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he began his ministry, was repent and believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. If you don't repent, then it's not efficient. It's sufficient for you if you repent, but it's not efficient if you don't take advantage of it. Amen? Amen. So say with me, God's grace is saving grace. It is sufficient grace, and it's also sanctifying grace. Verse 12, teaching us that. Who's the teacher? Teaching us that. What's the teacher? Grace. Grace. Grace teaches us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now notice he says denying, denying. You don't hear much preaching on that anymore. You hear a whole lot about God wants to bless you, give you the best parking lot at the store and make you rich and make life comfortable for you, your best life now. But the New Testament I read doesn't teach that. It says the Christian life is a life of denial of your flesh. The word denying means to disown. He says disowning ungodliness and worldly lusts. Disown. The believer in Jesus Christ is taught to take a stand against the inborn lusts of the flesh by literally disowning them. We're empowered to do this. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Romans 8, 13, one of my favorite verses. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, everybody say by the Spirit. If by the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, that is the sinful deeds of the body, you will live. How do we conquer the lust of the flesh? By the power of the Spirit. Denying ungodliness. Disowning ungodliness. Listen, it's one of the surest evidences somebody has truly been born again. See, if you say to me, I'm a Christian and I've been born again, but you're not living it, you're still out there living in sin, partying, getting drunk all the time, doing dope, living in fornication, sexual sin, without ever being convicted, if you're still living that way, you're not denying ungodliness. And denying ungodliness is one of the surest evidences that you've been born again. Not that you're perfect all the time. That's not what I'm saying. But engaged in the battle. Desirous to walk in the Spirit. 
genuinely convicted in moments of failure. Fighting the good fight. Are you hearing me? I mean, when I got saved and the Spirit of God came into my heart, I got convicted about all kinds of things. Now, I'm not perfect, and neither are you, but I am sincere. And if I mess up, I'm going to repent because I want the lines clear between me and him. But see, people who aren't born again, they, they don't worry about denying ungodliness. It doesn't matter to them. They're good with it. Isn't it interesting how so much sin has infiltrated the church? Because we're so afraid of calling sin, sin, because then we're not going to be politically correct. And we're going to be judging, which the Bible never tells you not to do. You say, yes, it does, Jeff. Jesus said, judge not. He meant judge, don't judge wrongly. Don't judge hypocritically. But he didn't say don't judge. If you don't judge, you're going to die by next week. Even the birds in my backyard judge a hawk when it comes swooping down and flee. If they were politically correct, they would say to one another, it's a hawk. We can't say it's a hawk, so it's not a hawk. It's okay. Just love it. And that hawk is going to come down and take them away, and they're going to die because they're politically correct. Now, of course you've got to judge. How stupid is that? It's stupid. Stupid. You got to judge all the time. Okay, that's another message. But this politically correct stuff, it drives me nuts. Now, Paul states that God's grace teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So, God's grace is saving, it's sufficient, it's sanctifying, teaches us to deny ungodly lusts, and it's also a sustaining grace. Paul says that God's grace teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And it sustains us in a godless environment. This present age, when he says this present age, as Paul calls it, is the ungodly, Christ-rejecting world we temporarily live in. That's this present age. And every believer's life is wrapped by grace and the unfailing favor of God while in this fallen world. The grace of God is sustaining you and it's sustaining me. His grace, I'll give you some examples, sustains us in the midst of afflictions that are overwhelming. Jesus told Paul, who was bugged by some thorn in the flesh, and he prayed three times, and finally the Lord answered him. Here's what he told him. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, says Paul, I will rather boast of my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How? Because the grace of God is a sustaining grace. Another example, his grace teaches us to give generously to support the Lord's work. He says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, so let each one, Now, did that say a few? How many is each one? Last time I studied English, it was everybody. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So his grace teaches us to give generously. His grace sustains us in afflictions. And God's sustaining grace teaches us to turn our back on the desires of the world. For this world, says the Apostle James, is an enemy of grace. Listen to James. Adulterers and adulteresses, he says to Christians, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't befriend this world and walk with God. You can't. You've got to make up your mind. You know what? The world's going one way. I'm going another. Like the old song says, the cross, the world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. When you put your hand to the Christian plow, you are leaving the world behind, and the cross is what you're pursuing. The Christian life, the crucified life, the Christ-exalting life. Okay? John Phillips puts it this way. This world is the devil's lair for sinners and lure for saints. 
This world murdered our Savior, this world we're living in. Has persecuted godly people since the days of Cain. Let me tell you about this world. It can't rob you of your salvation, but it can rob you. It can rob you of your assurance, your peace, your joy, your testimony, and your reward. It can. This world is not the friend of the Christian. Now, I'm not talking about the beautiful creation. I'm talking about the Christ-rejecting, flesh-glorifying, godless world, the culture that the devil is prince over, the thinking of this culture, the lifestyle of this culture, the worldview of this culture. It's not the friend of the Christian. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now, so we're in it, but we're not of it. As salt and light, we're called to influence it for Christ, not to be influenced by it away from Christ. Boy, this is good teaching. And God's grace operates to sustain us in this present evil age. Paul says God's grace will help empower us to live soberly, meaning self-control. Righteously, meaning doing what is right at all times, at all costs, and on all counts. And godly, meaning Christ-like. One of my favorite verses, and this is what the grace of God does. Philippians 2.13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and then the power to do what pleases him. Isn't it funny when you get born again, you want to please God, and that never bothered you before. But once you're born again, you want to please God. Don't you love knowing that the smile of the Heavenly Father is on your life? When you do the right thing, don't you love feeling that peace and hearing God say, well done, son, well done, daughter? I do. But see, that's the born-again heart. So say with me, His grace is saving sufficient, sanctifying, and sustaining. And it also affects our spiritual sight. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christian's sight is not to be focused on this present world, which is, according to John in 1 John, passing away and the lust thereof. But on the return of Christ, that's what we're supposed to be focused on, and that's what grace will focus the believer on, the return of Christ. Notice how Paul identifies Jesus as very God. Can I just point that out because it jumped at me today? Look at verse 13 again. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great who? God and who? Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul is telling us in no uncertain terms that Jesus is God and God is Christ. God the Son. God the Son. So Jesus was not a first century hippie walking through the spiritual tulips, tiptoeing through the tulips, saying cool things. He was God, wrapped in flesh, come to visit us and redeem us. And that's what it says next. His grace was sacrificial. Look what it says he did. He gave himself for us. The great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us. Here's a powerful verse. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ on the cross reconciling you and me. So who was hung on the cross, everybody? In Christ. God was in Christ. He stepped out of eternity into time, leaving the high halls of heaven, glories unimaginable, to arrive as a baby born in Bethlehem. There's no question to me, the most astounding fact of history is that the second person of the Godhead, the one whom angels worship, who created the universe, came to die for us. And why? Verse 14, we're almost done. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Yeah. Redeem. He came to redeem us. Yeah. 
That means to be set free by somebody paying a ransom. The Lord Jesus came down into the slave market of this world and purchased us with the high currency of his blood. We were all in the slave market, all slaves to sin, and Jesus came and redeemed us. He put down, he slapped down the bar of God, the only currency that could buy us out of slavery. His blood. His blood. His blood. That's why some of these so-called comedians, and I got to say this because I saw one this week, mocking Christ. And, and you know, I hear one of these comedians on national TV, network TV, mocking Christ, mocking the Lord, thinking that it's funny. And I think of what are they going to say when they meet God at the judgment bar and, and they rejected this blood that was shed for their sin. And God runs their life in front of them. He played it back. Because he'll play every, he'll hit the rewind button on every life that goes to the judgment seat of God. And the life will be played back in front of them. And, and to see yourself mocking Christ in front of God, I thought these, these poor people, they have no clue what they're mocking. Amen. He said, from every lawless deed, he came to redeem us from every lawless deed. That's pointing to our inborn fallen nature. We were hopelessly enslaved to, apart from divine intervention. Why? To purify for himself. That speaks of the blood cleansing us from our sin and the grace of God ongoingly sanctifying us from the sin of this evil age. He did and does this for himself. He purifies you and me for himself. What is he after? His own special people. Literally means his own acquisition. In another place, Paul says, you are not your own. Can I give you some news tonight? You're not your own. Yeah, I guess I am, Jeff. I'm an independent man. I'm an independent woman. No, you're not. If you're not his, you're a slave of sin. You're still not your own. But if you are his, you're not your own, for you have been bought at a price, the currency of the blood. So you're not your own. And then why did he get a people purified for himself? Why? Why did he redeem us? For what reason? Just to get us to heaven? That's not all, though that's part of it. But zealous, that we would be zealous for good works. The Greek word for zeal here literally means a zealot. If somebody's accused you of being zealous for the Lord, like critically, take it as a compliment. Because every Christian is supposed to be a zealot. Amen. It means to be totally sold out, all in, for doing good works. I'm going to tell you, I'm addicted to what I do. It's an addiction. It's a good addiction. It's the only time the New Testament ever mentions addiction. And here's the verse. It says, they have addicted themselves. Speaking of some of the saints, they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. That's the only time addicted is used in the New Testament. So you know what? I'm addicted. I, I need a fix pretty often. I'm getting my fix right now. I love being involved in good works. I, I love it. Because I used to be involved in bad works. But, but now God has redeemed me, and he took me out of bad works into good works. Amen. We're not saved by good works, but good works attest to the fact that we have been saved. Yeah. Paul says in Ephesians, and I'm closing with this, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's, there ought to be no bench warmers in the church of God. Amen. Everybody is supposed to be on the field. Everybody's supposed to be running the ball. Everybody's supposed to be involved in the play. Everybody should be involved in trying to get a touchdown for Jesus every single day. He closes out chapter 2 with the final words. Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anybody despise you. When we are God's reps, everybody, we carry authority from another realm. And while some will indeed despise us, we should never allow it to derail our assignment. Because as a child of God, you're representing another realm. And that realm 
has all the authority in the world. Didn't Jesus say all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth? Let me close with this thought. There is a huge difference between authority and power. If you said to me, Jeff, what do you want? Do you want authority or do you want power? I would say immediately without having to think, I want authority. Because you look at any football game and you see power on the field. 350-pound halfbacks, brutes, monsters, beasts. But a little bitty guy in a striped suit can stand in front of him and blow a whistle and he stops. Because authority always trumps power. Why does he stop in front of that little ref in the striped suit? Because that referee represents the entire NFL, which has authority over those players. So when you go up against the devil, you're not going up against the devil. You're speaking on behalf of another realm that has total authority over the devil. Amen? So I'd rather have a striped suit in the kingdom of God than anything else. We've got authority. Amen? Let's stand together. And next week we're going to talk about save to do what is good. Save to do what is good. How many of you are glad you came to church tonight? Isn't that good? Let's thank the Lord. Father, we thank you for this beautiful, beautiful word that you've given through the Apostle Paul to Titus to us. Thank you for all of the aspects of grace. Thank you for the authority you've given us in the name of Jesus as representatives of the kingdom of God. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to be employees that adorn the message of grace and employers that do the same thing. Help us to keep in mind that somebody is always watching to see how we walk and how we talk. Help us, Lord, to do our best sincerely, though not perfectly. In Jesus.